Well, I have the coffee brewed and uh, poured into my uh, Starry Night mug from Vincent Van Gogh. I'm ready to rock and roll. Hopefully you are too with your favorite favorite beverage, whatever that may be. Some some good news about the podcast. It recently passed a thousand listens. Uh, that was about a week and a half ago or so. Uh, uh, Anchor saying it's about 26 as the uh, overall audience, and that can go up and down a bit. Uh, but that's 26 uh, people that are consistently listening. I'd like to aim a uh, short-term goal to 40. That's not in my control necessarily. I can do a better job, of course, with this podcast, which would hopefully make it uh, more interesting to people. I do control that, <clears throat> but I don't control the... Um, I don't control the numbers in the end. That's not in my control. But I would say pretty much this is my perspective. I enjoy doing this. I have no illusions that I'm changing the world. Uh, but uh, overall, but I'm cha hopefully changing it on the on the micro side for people who like to listen. And I would do this podcast for one person. It's really not that great of a sacrifice. I mean, I love to read uh, Soren Kierkegaard. This gives me a reason to read him. And number two, I like to talk about them, so that's a win. And uh, so if there's one person out there, and I know there is, because I've heard at least from one person recently that they love the podcast, and hopefully there's more than that, um, I would keep doing it. I have uh, no overarching metric that says I have to be here at a certain point, otherwise I bail out. Um, but I'm also not one to subscribe to the idea that you know everybody who's not successful must be just a misunderstood genius. That's baloney. There's a lot of wackos out there. There's a lot of people unprepared for the task at hand. Uh, when I wrote a book, it was kind of funny. People treated it as my book like it was a part of the Vandy Press, like I was just another fringer trying to uh, shout to a deaf world. And I'm like, I've worked with kids for... Um, you know, 25 years at that point when I wrote the book. I have a PhD in educational psychology where I studied uh, college student development from high school. I also have a master's degree in counselor education. Uh, I'm like, I don't know what else people want. They can, it, it, was, it, was, it was hard to deal with, honestly, because people were, had a smarmy attitude towards the book. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't know what else I can do to be qualified and competent. I mean, I've worked in the field for 25 years. I have a PhD in, in specifically studying college preparation and transition. I have a master's degree. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it, it's frustrating. But at the same time, you know, people are people, and they're going to do what they're going to do. And we have to love them anyway. We do the best we can. I guess that's it. It's never going to be perfect, but we do the best we can. One of the interesting lessons in the, uh, in the Bible is the story of Moses. The first 40 of years of his life, he was part of the Egyptian court. If you know the, the Old Testament story, this is how the Old Testament tells it. And Moses probably wrote his own story to some degree. <clears throat> the first five books were composed by Moses, but they're, yeah, people can write about stories that they were a part of, were too young to write at the time, but could have heard from others. Uh, Moses was adopted uh, by the Pharaoh's daughter because there was infanticide being practiced on the Israelites who were uh, in bondage in Egypt, they were slaves. 
uh, a lot like black people in America and slavery all across the world. Uh, so Moses' biological mother put her, uh, she put him in the reeds in a basket, and uh, the basket was found by the Pharaoh's daughter, who raised Moses as, as if Moses was her biological child. So that was the first 40 years. He was a prince, and he was well groomed uh, to be a prince in the, um, in the Egyptian society. Uh, through a series of events, one of which being Moses was rash with his anger and came to the defense of an Israelite being beaten by its, his Egyptian master, Moses murdered the Egyptian, and he had to run. Uh, he was a wanted man because now he was no longer a prince, he was a fugitive. Uh, so Moses was right to be angry, but the way he handled it was rash, and uh, he had to depart from uh, Egypt, and he went to Midian, I think it was, and he spent 40 years out with the sheep as a shepherd, uh, got married, and then was called back uh, to Egypt to set his people free. Now, this is an interesting historical context and story. You have to accept a few things here. It's not pure mythology that the Israelites were in, in slavery in uh, Egypt through uh, the line of Joseph, uh, who had gone to Egypt as a slave, and that was several hundred years before. It was 400 years before in his family, and that was uh, Jacob's family. He was sold into slavery by his older brothers, uh, but the, uh, the Jews were prospered even under slavery after a while. Uh, they prospered and were very productive and probably had their hands on building the pyramids and other wonders of the world, of the ancient world. Uh, but by the time Moses came on the scene, the Israelites were sub subjugated people. And it's interesting that skeptics will say, well, this is mythology. No, it's not. There's a lot of proof that the Jews were in Egypt. Um, People dismiss the evidence because they don't want to admit where the evidence might lead. Uh, and then how the uh, Jews were were uh, released from Egypt. You know, did the Egyptians just say, eh, nice knowing you all, thanks for 400, 400 years. Uh, we're going to let you go free now, and you, you're free to go do your thing. Uh, that's not, that's a really ridiculous hypothesis. So how did the Jews get out of get out of Egypt? Did it happen willingly or was it an act of God that set them free? Um, in America, with slavery, it took a civil war, uh, five years of absolute brutality, uh, to even begin the process of setting black people free from servitude. It only began the process. So uh, skeptics have a lot to explain because they don't buy the narrative. Well, then come up with a more reasonable narrative. Try so uh, I heard a preacher say Moses' first 40 years was, uh, was a prince. His uh, second 40 years was poverty. And his last 40 years, because it was in God, was power. And Soren has something to say about that, believe it or not. I'm going to read it first and then we get into a little bit more of a story. Page 32. Purity of heart is to will one thing. To everything uh, there is a season, says Solomon. And Solomon was a king of uh, the combined uh, kingdom or country of Israel and Judah. It split after Solomon died. But this was the high point of, uh, of, that, of that country. To everything there is a season. We've all heard that before. That's, uh, that's uh, a bird song, I think. To everything 
turn, turn, blah, blah, blah. To everything there is a season, says Solomon. And in these words, he voices the experience of the past and of that which lies behind us. When an old man relives his life, he lives it only by dwelling upon his memories. And when wisdom in an old man has outgrown the immediate impressions of life, the past viewed from the quiet memory is something different from the present in all of its bustle. The time of work and of strain, of merrymaking and of dancing is over. Life requires nothing more of the old man, and he claims nothing more of it. By being present, one thing is no nearer to him than another. Expectation, decision, repentance, and regard to a thing does not affect his judgment. By being a part of the past, these distinctions all become meaningless. For that which is completely past has no present to which it may attach itself. Oh, the desolation of old age. If to be an old man means this, means that at any given moment a living person could look at life as if he himself did uh, not exist, as if life was merely a past event that held no more present task for him as a living person, as if he as a living person and life were cut off from each other within life, so that life was past and gone, and he had become a stranger to it. Oh, tragic wisdom! If it were everything human that Solomon spoke, if it was, if it were everything human that, that Solomon spoke, and if speech must ever end in the same manner, insisting that everything has its time, in the well-known words, "What profit hath he worketh in that wherein he laboreth?" Ecclesiastes. Three nine. Uh, so Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. It's kind of a retrospective. Uh, Solomon had power. He had uh, possessions. He had uh, hundreds of concubines and wives. I mean, this dude was loaded. He was he was the king. He was the goat. And Solomon writes uh, Ecclesiastes towards the end of his life. Now, he has some parts that he talks about being a young man, but mostly it's a retrospective. And he's looking back at his life, and he calls it all vanity. And that's true. Um, I have a lot of respect for people that attain some sense of uh, worldly success at a high level. And then they... Um, and then they get there, and they experience it, and they realize that it kind of comes up empty. Uh, that in the end, it's all about having contentment with who God has made us to be. And all these external things ultimately don't satisfy the human soul. And Soren kind of uh, concludes with this, this little portion of it. Only the eternal is always appropriate, and always present is always true. Only the eternal applies to each human being. Whatever his age may be. Now, I disagree with Soren a bit here. He's talking as if the old man has nothing left to give, that he's kind of a wasted uh, entity, and all he has left is his memories, as fleeting as they are. I think uh, the last third of a man's life or a woman's life uh, is very, very powerful. They have a lot of wisdom, as, as long as they are still cognitively okay, which may or may not be the case. But they have a lot of life experiences. Now, they're not absolutely 100% on top of everything. Nobody is, even with age. But one advantage that I always had working with kids in terms of at least um, dialogue, and I would use the word advantage carefully, but kids came to me for guidance with a certain assumptions that I knew more than they did as I was further down life's path. They may be very intelligent. They might be gifted. They may have an IQ of 160. I'm not... Uh, a stupid man, I have a pretty, IQ, pretty high IQ also, but one thing I had versus the kids was a lot more experience, and that's what my job was based off of. I've walked a lot of paths, 
And so my, my job was to share that and to give them uh, some ideas of where uh, their decisions and their paths might lead if they continued on them. And uh, that's what I did. And uh, I try to provide advice and I try to provide encouragement and I try to provide some sense of it's okay. You're going to get through this. Everybody does, or most of us do. It was interesting on, uh, let me blow my nose. I apologize again for the humanity here. I can't hide it. Um, I try to wait a little bit these days before doing the podcast because I notice when I drink coffee, it happens really quickly that my sinuses open up. There must be a lesson in there or meaning in that. I was down at my uh, old hometown on Saturday. I had family in town from uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, their daughter plays competitive soccer, team soccer, and they had some uh, soccer games down in uh, down in Delaware, which is you know close to where we grew up. It's not too far. It's certainly closer than Pittsburgh. So we arranged to meet at a place called Berlin Pizza, which was a favorite of my brother's. My brother Steve, he uh, he ate hundreds and perhaps thousands of Berlin Pizza Strombolis in high school. He insulted my mom's cooking when he was 14. Uh, and my mom says, if you could do better, then do so. And my brother said, I will. My brother uh, Steve is headstrong, just like the rest of us. He's smart, too. Smart as a whip. But it resulted in him not cooking for himself, but uh, riding his moped from his job. He worked for an automotive dealership, a Carson Pettit, uh, exclusive luxury cars. He was a detailer. And he would ride his moped over to Berlin Pizza and uh, get a Stromboli every night. So that was his pattern. He still loves Strombolis to this day. He, uh, he got imprinted for him. And my uh, Stromboli of choice is the Sugar Bowl here in Millersville. It's only about 10 minutes away from my house. That was the college Stromboli. So we've had a few uh, a few smackdowns between Berlin Pizza and Sugar Bowl, and we all agree that both uh, both Stromboli's are really good. I just lean towards the Sugar Bowl, and my brother Steve leans towards Berlin Pizza, of course, because that's what we kind of uh, were uh, accustomed to. Uh, so I get a Stromboli from sh- the Sugar Bowl every three or four months. I call it my lube job. Uh, it's all about the dough. Uh, Greeks make really, really good strombolis because the dough is thinner and crispier. If you try to use pizza dough to make stromboli, it's a bad move because uh, pizza dough is more rubbery. It's thicker. Uh, Greek dough is very thin. I always think it's like baklava or something. Same thing with ro- hoagie rolls, um, and I call them hoagies versus subs. Uh, a hoagie is a Philly term for submarine sandwich or hero. It's all about the roll. If the roll was wrong, the hoagie's going to be wrong. And Wawa, which is a uh, convenience store chain based out of Philadelphia, has a summer special on their hoagies. Uh, you can get a 12-incher for 6 bucks. So I plan to make a, a run to Wawa at some point and get myself a hoagie. Uh, so that's good. Uh, but in the meantime, when I was down at Berwyn Pizza, I was a little bit early. I had made a side trip through a, uh, a foundry that was... Uh, active during the Revolutionary War, and they recently found four large iron cannons uh, buried underneath the grounds. And so I went to go visit the foundry. It's on the way down to uh, the Philadelphia area, and it was pretty neat. Uh, Washington and his men had stopped by there to repair their weapons. I think it was after Brandywine and after all the Germantown stuff, but maybe it was after Brandywine and before Germantown, but they stopped to go uh, restock and get their weapons repaired to get more ammunition and all that stuff. So it was fun to be there and walk around those grounds, and I could tell it was a big ironworks back in the day. 
Uh, so I was early uh, getting to Berwyn Pizza, so I decided to run by my old high school, uh, Conestoga, down in Berwyn, and the Conestoga Road runs right behind, or right in front of the high school, I think it's in front of the high school, yeah, and that runs all the way up here, the old Conestoga Road, uh, so it's pretty neat, that connection between uh, my hometown and here, I actually grew up in Devon, which is right next to uh, Berwyn, uh, Devon Devo, that's known as Devo, the main line, as I've talked about before. Uh, but I stopped by the uh, high school, and man, I said, man, it's been 40 years, holy moly, 40 years since I walked uh, walked these halls. And um, my advice to the young is be careful, especially if you're in your teen years. It doesn't seem fair in a way. Uh, teenagers like to think that they're going to be young forever, and they know that's not true, but they, they tend to think that way. Uh, so one thing I try to counsel the kids in high school was, is remember every decision you make is cumulative, which means you can do things in high school that you can spend a lot of time trying to fix when you get older, or you can make really good, good decisions in high school and get off to a good start. And there's this like window from late adolescence to early adulthood where, where, um, where teenagers are very, um, they're very vulnerable if they if they don't make good decisions. They get off track, and you have to get back on track at some point. It's like it, the on-trackness doesn't disappear. It's just a question of time. And before life gets too complicated, it's already complicated enough, I would really try to advise the kids, like, this is a really important time of your life. You have to really get through this and begin to prepare for your next steps. And uh, if they didn't, they were going to be in trouble. Uh, they were going to spend a lot of time, and uh, I could speak from experience. I made some very unwise decisions as a teenager. A lot of my wisdom has come from being a dumb, a dumbass, unfortunately. And the older I get, the less dumbass I am. I was very willful as a kid, and sometimes to my harm. I grew up with a very critical dad, and I learned to uh, be kind of passive aggressive in the face of that, and a lot of internalized anger. So I have kind of an inbred um, uh, fear animosity towards authority figures that are heavy-handed. I tend to rebel. Uh, and I fight back now versus being a kid when I just had to shut up and take it. Um, but I had to work through that. I had to see that authority wasn't always oppressive or authoritarian, that there could be this idea of authoritative, which is guidance and advisory and giving kids choices and not dictating choices. And that's a struggle for me to figure out where that balance is. I, I admit it. Especially if I feel the kids are harming themselves, I try to really put on the brakes and, and steer them in a different direction. And sometimes they don't like it. Uh, but it's like kind of like being a parent. If you're getting into parenting to be loved, I would suggest you get a dog and not a, not have a child. A lot of um, a lot of inner city kids and women, in particular young women, think that having a baby is going to fill that love that love need they have. And uh, it's true for a while. Baby can be affectionate, but they're also very demanding. But when the uh, child grows up a bit and begins to really develop their own will and has the ability to, you know, push back, now the, now the mom has a more difficult challenge on her hands, especially if the husband's not around or the father of the baby. She has to now parent a child who is not super easy and doesn't always act in a loving way towards her. And it's very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult. And uh, that's one of the things that creates all these unplanned pregnancies in the inner city. It's unplanned in one way, but it's very planned in another. The girl thinks that this child is going to be a source of love for her. And that's ultimately true. I think love always wins, but it's a hard love. And being a parent is not easy. And even in the best situation when you're married, marriage is difficult. I talk to enough friends that have successful marriages 
they they know and they tell me and I already know this that their marriage sometimes can be very hard and it waxes and wanes and it, if you put kids in the equation that's even more of a challenge you're doing your best just to keep your head above water sometimes so to uh, kind of end this up and to tie this up in a neat bow um, a Soren I think needs to remember that being old is not a curse everything is good and maybe he gets more into that I've read a little bit ahead of that particular section I read today, but he, I think he's seeing old age kind of as a, only a reflection of something earlier. And I don't think that's true. I can speak from experience right now that I really, really love being older. I really enjoy it because I've kind of gotten beyond the demands of the day and I want to contribute. I want to give back. I want to continue to be productive and be purposeful. I don't want to just watch television and rot my mind and drink myself into oblivion where I just turn into a into a pathetic old person. I want to continue to be active. I want to continue to contribute. I don't want to be in the nine to five, like I talked about before, but I think I have a lot of wisdom to offer. So I would tell you in terms of this podcast, I'm thinking about cutting back to once a week. I'd like to see the uh, listener average go up to 40. uh, And that would mean like the podcast themselves would have about 40 lessons. Again, I don't want to bail if it doesn't happen because I think it still can be helpful. I, you know, I don't want to like treat this as my own little private playground though, where I'm looking to be affirmed or applauded. I, I don't want that to be my vibe. I think I have something to say. I think I speak to the middle ground to some extent. I think I have a lot of wisdom, and some of it's school-based. So a lot of my examples are school-based. I don't know what else to say. You know, I I have to use what I know. And I feel uncomfortable, um, you know, exporting uh, experiences from other people too much into my own life. It doesn't relate to me. Um, And I also believe the idea that you might be able to count the uh, amount of acorns in a tree, but you can't count the amount of trees in an acorn, which means one acorn can really lead to a, a huge success down the road. And that's what faith is about, that, you know, a person will put good seed into the ground and um, they themselves may never see the harvest, but they touch somebody in the process of doing that who winds up going up and being a world changer. And there might be a world changer or two or three or four listening to this right now that are much more uh, established early on, you know, to make a huge difference. It took a while for me to really find my footing. And I don't think I felt comfortable as a professional until I was in my 40s sometime. And then I took on the PhD program, which meant I continued to work on my skill development until uh, my mid-40s. So I didn't have my act together in, a, in an official sense entirely uh, until a bit later than some people. And again, that was because of some really dumb and unwise decisions I made as a kid that I have repented from and I wanted to improve upon. But the consequences were there and they were they were hard to deal with. I will tell you that much. I don't want to tell too much about that. I don't want my past to be used against me. Uh, but getting together with my brothers and my dad on Saturday was funny because you tend to go back and tell your war stories and all the things your parents didn't know the first time through. And then you laugh about them, but you, you also think about them and like, man, we were idiots. And I really was an idiot. Oh boy. I don't know what else to say. But a lot of my experiences as being a, being a teenager helped me empathize with the struggles of being a kid that you want to you know, do what you do and you want to get away with stuff and you don't want to be responsible, but you know you need to be. And it's a tough time of life. You don't have all the answers that you want. 
and often your role models and your parents and your teachers don't seem particularly tuned into your situation, so you have to do a lot of it on your own. And uh, I really felt when I was a teenager that I was pretty much on my own. My parents were distracted. It's not that they didn't care about me in the, uh, in the overall sense of it. I know they did. Uh, just my dad was overseas. My mom was distracted. She was having her set second adolescence. And we were lost children, left to our own devices. And that doesn't usually lead to good things. Uh, but I want to share my experiences and my hard-earned wisdom with people and hopefully it benefits you uh, over the long haul i've tried to be more affirming online with people it makes me feel awkward when i'm complimentary it's easier to be negative or a critic but i've made an effort in the last week or two to point things out that i see are good and admirable uh, with my friends and acquaintances and even strangers online to draw attention to the good Without ignoring the bad, there's a lot going on in our society right now that's not good, so I speak to that too, but you have to have some balance. So nice catching up with everybody. Have a blessed day.